0: Welcome to Health Currents Radio. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, your host. This show is all about transforming your life through your health. We're going to meet people who've done that, give you the resources to work on it, and share information that inspires and motivates you to make positive changes in your life. My passion is health, and it's what I've done for over 30 years. Thank you to our sponsor, Pearl Natural Health, a naturopathic acupuncture and Chinese medicine clinic located in downtown Portland, Oregon. You can find Pearl Natural Health at pearlnaturalhealth.com. GMOs, genetically modified organisms, are in the news often these days, with over 30 states considering labeling laws. Whole Foods Market announcing that it will label all products containing genetically modified organisms— carried in its U.S. and Canadian stores by 2018, and most recently the introduction by Senator Barbara Boxer of California and Congressman Peter DeFazio of Oregon of the Genetically Engineered Food Right-to-Know Act, bipartisan legislation that would require the Food and Drug Administration to clearly label genetically engineered foods so that consumers can make informed choices about what they eat. Today, we are speaking with David Gould about this topic, from the science to the health impact to our right to know and choose. David Gould is a food and biological scientist with a degree from MIT. He's deeply committed to improving access to healthier food, empowering people, and creating a better future for the planet. So, for the past 20 years, he's been a global expert in food sustainability systems, working in international policy and standards for food systems and sustainable development, especially organic, fair trade, and non-GMO. He's an advisor to governments, private standards systems, and companies on the development of sound agricultural systems and food chains. He's been actively involved in the GMO issue since first field crops were introduced in 1996. He has done risk management studies worldwide on GMOs and written some of the first standards about non-GMO food chains and products, designing control systems to meet those standards. He was technical director of the non-GMO project during its inception in 2008 and is still advisor to the project. He currently is the value chain facilitator for the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements, a global umbrella organization for the organic movement, as well as ongoing participation in the ongoing debate on GMOs, giving input to public and private sector about GMOs and other environmental and social themes. David, welcome to Health Currents Radio. Thanks, Ellen. David, let's start by... Educating our listeners a little bit about GMOs, genetically modified organisms, and telling our listeners what they are exactly. So in in simple
1: terms, uh, GMO is an organism which has had its genetic material changed essentially in a way that nature would not have allowed happen on its own. And typically what happens is a gene from a foreign organism is inserted into the host organism uh, so that it carries certain kinds of traits. Uh, there are some times when they can actually manipulate the, the genetic material of a given organism and maybe double a gene in there, so it, it acts in a certain different way as well. But these are all very um, unnatural ways of, of making a genetic uh, material of the organism.
0: But how is this different than hybrid, hybrid plants, you know, crossing plants, et cetera? Well, um,
1: evolutionarily it's different in that organisms have uh, developed the way they assimilate generic, genetic material over millions and billions of years. And that, is a, that it follows the typical machinery of the cell, whereas genetic engineering is really a very inexact science in that uh, what happens is literally a gene is shot into the host organism with what is called a gene gun. Oh, really? And and literally the, the the gene is shot into the nucleus of the cell, and if it sticks in there and then starts to express the traits that they're desiring, then they continue to propagate it. Often it just doesn't work, and they, they go back to the drawing board and try again. One of the big things that happens, though, is you get the new trait, but when it's inserted into the genome, it disrupts the other places where where the gene got inserted and it may turn off or on certain genes that really we don't know it fully what's happening, and there are secondary effects that are largely unknown, sometimes come to the fore or or become evident long after, but part of the difficulty is we don't even know what to check for because we don't know what all of the genes do in any given organism. Even in the human, the human genome has been mapped and we know all the genes, but not all of them are turned on. You don't have fingernails growing out of your eyeballs, for instance. All your cells have the same genetic material, but the way in which they are programmed is not understood at all.
0: Why was this created? Why did people start doing this? Why did companies start doing this?
1: Well, there's there's a few motivations. I mean, If you would look at it from a very altruistic point, you would say this is a very powerful technology. We can create foods or other products which have characteristics that may do things like... Uh, make them produce better, maybe have supposedly enhanced nutritional qualities. So that would be the, the beneficial side of it. Um, the other uh, side of it is economic, in that uh, if you produce a new product and can patent it, and therefore own it, and since everybody eats, and the food market is the biggest, the biggest market, there's a tremendous potential for uh, for economic gain there. And now, one of the things that is uh, critical in understanding the history of this is that in 1979, the Supreme Court actually ruled that it was possible to patent life, and that was a watershed decision which has actually been sustained uh, even in recent years and it was never before allowed to happen and the the premise of the companies that own these new uh have these patents is that they can follow this new gene and this new trait wherever it goes and and therefore start to essentially control that part of the food supply
0: that's quite a concept i mean we people have saved seeds since there were seeds and uh, thus agriculture has developed. But now, so we're, we're getting into two things here. One is the implications of genetically modified foods on the ecosystem and on the human system. And then we're getting into also the concept of that seeds are then owned and what that, the implication of what that does to agriculture and farming and et cetera. So Let's start with, since we started talking about genes, let's start talking about the implication it has on the ecosystem and human health. What do we know about that?
1: Well, there's a lot of implications and a lot of effects which have been found from genetically modified organisms. Um, And one of the things about them is that these are alive. You know, and so you may there's you know DDT is no longer allowed in most countries uh, you know other pesticides have been found to be harmful and the reality is that you could stop applying those anytime you want but these organisms are alive and so they're in, the, they're in the environment, and they literally have a life of their own. And once, as they say, the genie is out of the bottle, you cannot put it back in. And they tend to start migrating around. They show up in other places. They start to actually act like other organisms where they may transfer their traits, mm-hmm. as genes normally do, right? Because now you have a functioning organism, and it has its normal recombination uh, of genetic material that, that normally goes on. So... Um, so, the spread is potentially uncontrollable and actually has been shown to be that way. It just continues to have you have this genetic pollution, if you will that occurs. The evidence of the effects of these of these organisms is almost completely negative on the environment, and part of that is because the intention of these is to exhibit a certain trait and it's a very myopic view we want it to be able to kill a certain pest or we want it to be able to be resistant to an herbicide so that we could spray our field and have only our plant which can withstand this herbicide come up and we won't have to worry about having any weeds and because you only if you only look that far in an ecological system, which is a very complex web of interactions, you shortchange many of the other functions. And uh, and and you know if if these organisms had been out in the environment all this time and we weren't seeing any bad effects, well maybe we'd say maybe they're not so bad. But the really the opposite is quite is, is quite the case is that we see consistently some kind of negative effect happening, usually unforeseeable. But in retrospect, it makes total sense that these things would have happened.
0: So what are those negative effects that we've seen? Well, so um, uh,
1: the kind of the poster child, if you will, for the anti-GMO movement is the monarch butterfly.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, And so what happens is the corn is genetically engineered to have a toxin in it from the Bacillus thuringiensis bacterium, and this is a commonly applied um, extract from this bacterium, which is good against these worm-like uh, creatures that tend to turn into butterflies, the corn worms, or or they could you know attack other kinds of uh, vegetables. Right, they're a pest. Uh, even some organic farmers will use this so-called BT Bacillus thuringiensis toxin topically. It's not that. You know, if used in a, in a judicious way, it's not that bad. And it's better than having an insect decimate your crop. Mm-hmm. But the way the, the organism, the GMO is set up is that every cell in the organism carries this toxin. So it's built-in pesticide. If you look at a package of BT, it doesn't say you should eat it. But you're eating it in, uh, in, in the corn. And it's in every cell in the corn. And then, so what happens is the uh, the butterfly, for instance, who also feeds on this organism, all of a sudden is also dying wholesale.
0: Mm. And
1: so you have this secondary effect, essentially, where a non-target organism is affected. Uh, another example would be in the uh, uh, there was a BT potato, which um, actually didn't make it very far to market because when GMO started becoming controversial. Um, McDonald's kind of very quietly said to the potato seed companies, we don't want this because we don't want bad press, we don't want controversy, so we won't buy it. And because they buy 25% of the potatoes in this country, it didn't really, it wasn't really a market success. But in that situation, what was happening was the aphids that would eat the, 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 the potato was engineered to fight the Colorado potato beetle, which is a big pest. But other organisms feed on these potatoes too, they're out of nature, and so aphids, We're also feeding on the potatoes. And what an aphid really is is a little plant juice sucker. It's a little ball, a little bubble of plant juice. And ladybugs, which love aphids and are one of the most common beneficial organisms, were eating all of these aphids of BT plant juice and dying. Mm -hmm. And so you have a non target beneficial organism, which is also being wiped out. Where this, this this exists, these are just only a few examples. In virtually every crop, there is a secondary effect which occurs, you, you, and you have a it's a it's a vicious cycle. GMOs are allowed into the system now because somehow the biotech companies have convinced the government uh, that they're safe, and it's based on sound science.
0: And how have they done that?
1: Well, they they do their own studies. And they present them to the FDA and the EPA, and, and they, they give evidence through their lens. Um, they're not particularly peer-reviewed. Uh, they also have, quite frankly, a lot of political influence in these departments. What's, what I think is really important for people to understand is that it's not sound science. Actually, when I first started working in this field, in you know, was, this is in the you know, mid to late 90s. And at that time, the Internet was actually pretty... Primitive, almost, right? And you could go to, I remember going to Monsanto's webpage, and on the left-hand column, there was a bar, and there was literally one of the bars was stock answers to environmentalist concerns. And if you go to that and you read it, you think, you know, this is okay. These guys have done their homework. This is sound science. It's responsibly done. Really, this is a good innovation. Mm -hmm. But they neglect the two most fundamental concepts of biology in their argument, and if you insert these in, then you realize this is completely irresponsible to have an environmental release of these organisms. If you want to experiment with these things in a lab, in a very controlled environment, that might be okay. There's been a lot of medicines that have been done by genetic engineering. There are vaccines which have been created. These have done great things for mankind. But they're in a very controlled situation. They're not, the genie is not out of the bottle.
0: So what was that element of biology that was ignored? Okay,
1: so there are two main concepts. One is the and, and these are concepts which frame how people think about biology. It's a way that we think about the world. Mm-hmm. So the first concept is intergenerational, it's evolution, right? This is the the succession of species as essentially founded by Darwin. It says that things live because they figure out how to do it. And they don't figure out consciously. It's almost kind of a random thing. Their, their genes allow them to do it or they don't. And because of the number of specimens out there, some survive and some don't. It's called natural selection. And so what happens is just by the pressure of numbers, some survive. Life finds a way to go on, right? So for instance, in the Bt corn, Right It's designed to kill the corn borer. Well, there are some organ some of these worms are born somehow with some ability to tolerate it, and then you have these resistant bugs, so it doesn't even work now you have the corn full of these toxins, and it doesn't even work. Mm. or the other concept would be uh, for instance, uh, or a good example is the superweed. so in a uh, you know in the past, even farmers who sprayed pesticides or herbicides. They would do it when they had a problem. They sell weeds. Oh, I'm going to spray some pesticides. I'm going to spray some herbicides and kill them, right? But now when you have the Roundup-ready crop, right, the Roundup is the broad spectrum herbicide, and so I'm just going to spray the field, I'm going to plant my seed that can resist it, my soybean seeds, and I'm going to spray the field with, with the Roundup, and that way only my soybeans are going to come up. So what's happened is the crop is designed to be sprayed with this chemical which is a pesticide. It's, it's toxic to the environment. It's toxic to people. It's toxic to frogs. It's toxic to all kinds of things. It's a biocide. And so now what happens is, well, okay, so basically I'm trying to kill everything. Well, nature finds a way. And so now you have these weeds which can grow. They also are now resistant to roundup. Either the gene has migrated or they have developed something in their own cellular machinery. So what do you have to do? You have to spray with more toxic pesticides.
0: It's much like what we're seeing with uh, antibiotic-resistant exactly bacteria. Exactly the same. It's so, a
1: very good analogy.
0: Yeah, so we're seeing that now out in nature with these plants. Let's Let's finish up by just talking about Um, A little bit more of those implications also in terms of are are we pushing out uh, any other crops? I know corn is a wind pollinator. Mm -hmm. So there was that controversy, that issue in Canada where GMO corn the wind blew the pollen to a non-GMO field and quote infected that field and of course then there was a whole ownership issue okay. around that but we are we seeing that there was a controversy in Oregon about canola being right. GMO corn being canola being grown in in Oregon
1: It actually was a canola case in uh, in Canada oh, and that's okay. insect pollinated so a same kind a similar right. kind of thing and actually I think even what happened was a truck going by with a GMO canola harvest,
0: some of it just blew off the truck into a field. And so it infected the field. Right. And then
1: what happened was Monsanto claimed this guy used our seeds against, and he infringed on the patent, and now he owned his crop.
0: So it seems like, from my simple understanding, that there was a real um, ignoring of just basic understanding of how things grow and pollination and the interaction with the biodiverse environment.
1: Yes. And, and what's, what amazes me, as somebody who is trained in these basic biological things, is that is that there, there are a lot of people out there, breeders or scientists who work for these companies, who just see the power of what they're doing and think it's a good thing without understanding these implications. And I, I actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to the other concept, right, where we talked about the right. evolution. The other one is intragenerational. It's within the living, it's within the one generation. And this is where a lot of the health effects come in. Because the other concept is one which we call homeostasis, which is organisms strive for equilibrium. They try and be in a steady, happy state, and I guess if you would link the two concepts, so that they can get mature enough to procreate and evolve, you know, and have another generation. Which means that if I stick something into the genome, into the nucleus, right? I push on it in one way, it's going to compensate somehow, right? If I push it here, it's got to adjust there. And we may know all the pieces, you know, some of the pieces of the puzzle, all these genes, but we don't know how they interact. And we don't know all the different materials a cell of a given species makes. It's like having a jigsaw puzzle of 5,000 pieces, putting 100 or 200 that we know on the table and thinking we know what the picture looks like. Mm. Oh, it's not a corn plant. It's Godzilla. You know, it's, it comes out totally different. And so, for instance, uh, the, the genetically engineered soybean has a three to 500-fold difference in the amount of phytoestrogens, naturally, in the, in the soybean. Completely unintentional. Did the, the, the biotech companies intend for this? No. They were just looking for the trait they wanted. Mm. Right. So they only look for the one and maybe they get if they get that one, then they keep going with it. But they don't look at what else is going on in there. So the nutritional profile, whether it's got toxin in there or just some different balance, is suspect at least.
0: So, David, this is such a, a, a deep and complex topic. It, it We can see that the implications are are broad and huge. So I'd like to just for our listeners, just wrap up and and give a synopsis of of what we've talked about today so that we can then go into part two, which will be talking more about the consumer and and our right to know and what's going on sure, out there in the world. Sure.
1: So genetic engineering is the most powerful technology we have ever come across, and it has huge potential. But like other technologies, like nuclear power, for instance, we know that there are potential downsides to that. Science is supposed to serve humanity and 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 not just our own individual interests, shall we say, or, mm-hmm. or a given economic interest. And so science in society should be done in a way which is responsible. And we would call that using a precautionary approach. And there's something called the precautionary principle, which is that if a technology comes out, is that it is not released in an Uncontrolled, irresponsible way into society. It would only be done if it's if it's clear that it has been proven within reason to all reasonable amount that that it can be done responsibly and in a safe way. And if there is are doubts about that, it, the onus is on the introducer of this technology,
0: which has not really been. Let's say the buck hasn't stopped there.
1: <laughs> well, if you look at in the United States in particular, in Europe, for instance, there is a much more of a precautionary approach, although some of these same economic and political influences are at play.
0: So in your opinion, the precautionary approach really has not been utilized in in the release of genetically modified Completely organisms. flouted. <laughs> That's an absolute. So David, I'd like to thank you for that introduction to the perspective of genetically modified organisms from a scientific point of view. And on part two, we're going to talk about how that affects the consumer, what's going on out there in the world, and how we interact with it as consumers of food. Welcome. I think it's become evident from that conversation with David Gould about GMOs that there's a lot for us to learn about the science, and there's a lot for science to do in investigating the impact of GMOs on the agriculture, on the environment, and on ourselves. This past week in the New York Times on May 29th, it was announced that the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service announced that unimproved variety of GE glyphosate-resistant, otherwise known as the herbicide Roundup, wheat, was found in samples taken from a farm in Oregon. The variety detected was the same variety that Monsanto grew in test plots in 16 states from 1998 to 2005. There are no genetically engineered wheat varieties currently approved for sale in the United States or any other country in the world. So the impact of this discovery remains to be seen. So what can you do to educate yourself on this topic of GMOs? I want to give you some websites, some resources where you can do just that. The Institute for Responsible Technology is one of those places. According to their website, it is a world leader in educating policymakers and the public about genetically modified foods and crops. They investigate and report their risks, impact on health, environment, the economy, and agriculture, as well as the problems associated with current research, regulation, corporate practices, and reporting. To learn more about them, you can go to their website at www.responsibletechnology.org. That is www.responsibletechnology.org. There is a wealth of information on their site, as well as links to other organizations which can offer you education and citizen actions to take. The Organic Consumers Association is a grassroots nonprofit public interest organization which campaigns for health, justice and sustainability. You can go to their website at www.organicconsumers that's one word organicconsumers.org. And finally, a real leader in GMO labeling is the Non-GMO Project, which is committed to preserving and building reserves of non-GMO products and educating consumers while providing verified non-GMO choices. Their website is nongmoproject.org. That's one word, nongmoproject.org. So be sure to join us next week on Health Currents Radio when we continue our conversation with David Gould on GMOs and specifically on labeling and how it affects the consumer. You won't want to miss it. That's all for our show today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ellen Goldsmith. My passion is health, and it's what I've done for over 30 years. Thank you again to our sponsor, Pearl Natural Health, a naturopathic acupuncture and Chinese medicine clinic located in downtown Portland, Oregon. You can find Pearl Natural Health at pearlnaturalhealth.com. You can listen to Health Currents Radio and connect with us on communityradio.fm slash healthcurrentsradio. Find us on iTunes, Download us on the mobile app Stitcher or join in the conversation at Facebook.com slash HealthCurrentsRadio. We want to know how you are transforming your life through your health. Special thanks to our fantastic audio engineer and producer, Jonah Gile Neufeld.